This morning's message will come from Genesis chapter 4, verses, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. And soon we will be reading God's word, Genesis 2, verses 4 through 9. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 4, fathers are commanded not to provoke our children to wrath, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Living Translation of the Bible states, don't keep scolding and nagging your children, rather bring them up with loving Discipline. Philip's translation says, don't overcorrect them. There's a tension within the text. To go too far to one side, your children might become embittered and you make it difficult for them to obey the commandment. But if you go to the other side, if we never correct them, Then we leave them to themselves, and then Proverbs teaches they will bring shame to their parents. So as parents, we must live with this natural tension. We must stay right in the middle. But maybe you're here and you're not a parent. Well, but if you have a touch ID phone, you might know that if you apply too much pressure, Siri will start talking to you. And if you don't apply enough pressure, the phone just doesn't work. We must press just enough. And children, don't think you're off the hook. You have to deal with this tension as well. If you order a soft ice serve ice cream on a hot summer day, you must apply the right amount of pressure to the ice cream cone. If you don't apply enough pressure with your tongue, you will get you will not get the right amount of ice cream and your ice cream will melt in the smeltering sweltering sun. But if you apply too much pressure, your ice cream will fall to the ground. There again is an example of this natural tension we must live with. Now there is a tension in our worship towards God. It is found in the first two chapters of Genesis. Before we highlight this tension, let us read Genesis 2, verses 4 through 9. You should be there. This is God's word. These are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, 
For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and we give you praise. We pray that you make this book come alive to us today and that we may obey it and that we grow in your grace and look more like Christ Jesus every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we jump into the text, I'd like to just give you a little bit of the background of the book of Genesis. Or I should say the Torah, the first five books. The children of Israel had spent 40 years wandering in the desert after being miraculously delivered from Egypt. Now they were about to go into the promised land. They had been heavily influenced by the gods of Egypt. You know the story. Moses went away. And when he came back, his brother said, I don't know what happened. I just threw some stuff in the fire and out came this calf, this golden calf. It's pretty amazing that something just popped out like that. Sounds like evolution, you know, just popped out of nowhere. For instance, though, these Egyptian gods, one was named Shu. Hope I'm pronouncing it right. Those of you who study Egyptology can correct me later, but I think it's Shu. Was the Egyptian god of dry air. Tefnut was his twin sister, and she was the god of moisture and rain. She, Shu was a man with a feather on his head, and Tefnot was a woman with the head of a lioness. Now Moses uses chapter 1 in Genesis to remind the ancient Hebrews, and also us, that God alone created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. He is not some higher form or higher life form of man, but both infinitely transcendent above his creation and uniquely within it. Eric Alexander, a minister of the Church of Scotland, said, The creation account challenges man in his littleness to stop viewing God as though he were a person like ourselves. 
God is not the bigger human being. That's not who he is. That's not who the Bible reveals him to be. Isaiah 40, 12 to 14 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked out the heavens with a span? Who has enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales? Slow down a bit. Let's slow our mind down a bit. Let's take the biggest mountain we've ever discovered or seen before. And let's place it next to the next biggest mountain or the bigger mountain. We don't know which one. But God can weigh both of these and tell us which one is heavier. This is how amazing the God that we serve is. And the hills in balance. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compares with him? No, we can't and dare not compare man or any other created thing to the maker of heaven and earth. The creation account in Genesis chapter 1 makes it clear that God has no equals and no rivals. He doesn't have a twin sister, and he does not pout and get angry at human beings when they are late bringing him some sacrifices. Chapter 1 of Genesis reveals that these things to, reveals these things to us to remember our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. One of the dangers of believing God is just like we are is to reduce him to the status of a compassionate friend or empathetic family member. But some of your problems are larger than any human friend can handle or any empathetic family member can bear. No, we have a Father in heaven who created all things that exist, the seen and the unseen. How long and how many times have you thought about that? Today is the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Maybe you can take 10 minutes to think about the fact that there are multitudes of things that have been created that we can't see. They're microscopic. Diseases and bacteria, things that will lay us out flat, but we can't see it. But God can. He's able to see everything. He created everything. How amazing is this great God that we serve? He measured the waters in the hollow of his hand so that same hand is able to deliver you. So let's stop reducing God to some mere superman because some of your problems are too big and too complex for a mere superman. We need the father of lights who gives us good, have good gifts to show us and deliver us from all of our miseries. If you are here today and you have fallen into that ditch, cry out to God. God's hand is able to pull you out and give you hope. Now we spent three sermons about our glorious God in chapter one. I'm sure we could spend 
16 more sermons on that. But we need to move on. But now comes chapter 2, and Moses introduces this tension I mentioned earlier. The Israelites might have been corrected in their thinking, and, have, and now they have come to embrace the majesty of God, this majestic God. But if they're not careful, they will think that God is so holy and transcendent that, they, that he can't come to human beings. Or he won't. So the tension is God is high and lifted up. And he is near to man. Too much on one side. Then despair sets in. Because we believe God is so far away he can't help us. And if we go to the other side, God is so close that God becomes our pal or our homie. And then we lose the reverence we need that prevents us from despising him. From chapter 1, we are made clear that God is not like us. But this message acknowledges, this sermon acknowledges that point and yet emphasizes the nearness of God. In today's message, we will explore verses 4 to 9 and discover that, one, God demonstrates special care for people. Now, did I say his people? I could have, but I kept it general. I said people, because at this point, Adam, who is the representative of all people, and God causes the rain and the sun to shine on the just. And the unjust. So he doesn't just like his people, or he doesn't just provide for his own people. Yes, he does, but he also provides for those who dislike him, or hate him, or is far away from him. He doesn't say, okay, you don't like me? No water for you. He doesn't say, oh, you're not coming to worship? No sun will shine on you today. No, that's not our God. The Bible says, the New Testament says that he reigns and shuns, assigns the sun on the just and the unjust. So God demonstrates special care for his people. We'll see that in verse 4. God was the first gardener. We'll see that in verses 5 and 6. And God is our provider. We'll see that in verse, verses 7 through 9. So let's look at verse 4. Verse 4, I'll read it. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Verse 4 is a summary and transition statement. So it summarizes all of what was talked about, all of what was accounted in chapter 1, just summarizes it. Right here, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So it just brings it to a close. But the next part of that verse opens up to a transition. It transitions into a new subject. 
So you're at 1,000 feet, 100,000 feet. I don't know how high a plane goes. And you're coming down to the level of earth. So we looked at the heaven and closely now we're looking at the earth. It summarizes the creation account in chapter 1 and introduces the content of chapter 2. There are two text features we should pay close attention to. The word reversal. So, if you're reading quickly, you not you haven't noticed, but Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Some of us have memorized that. And Throughout chapter 1, you'll see the heavens and the earth. And when you close up that account in Genesis 2-1, you'll see the heavens and the earth. But look with me for B, I guess you would call it. In the day that the Lord made the earth and the heaven. So you will always be thinking to yourself, because you've heard it so many times, heaven and earth, heaven and earth heaven and earth. And whenever word order is changed, it causes you to say, whoa, 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 wait, wait, slow down. Why, why, why the change? It's a mental break. It's for you to not just glaze your eyes over it, but to, to pause and say, wait, hold it. Why is it not heaven and earth? Why is it earth and heaven? Well, the direction of the text is now going to change. It's going to take on new meaning. It's going to hone in on something else, bringing attention to that for you. And it's an introduction of a new word that has never appeared from Genesis 1-1 all the way to 2-4. Hasn't appeared. So up to this verse, the scriptural order has been God created the heavens and the earth. This is how the Bible opens. Chapter 2 closes with this account. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. But the end of verse 4, like I said, the words are inverted. In the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The text emphasizes will now change and zero in on the environment of mankind. The other unique text feature is the introduction of a word that has not been used yet. So Genesis 1, all of it, all the way to 2, 3, all the way down, is God. God. God created. God did this on the first day. God did this on the second day. God did this on the third day. And remember, I told you, and I've been telling you, when the Hebrews do that, when you don't see that pattern, you say, whoa, and you pause. So you see God, you see God, you see God, you see God. 2-4, it becomes Lord God. So up to this point, Moses only uses the generic name of God. In verse 4, Yahweh, the covenant name of God is introduced. This God Covenant, this is God's covenant name. According to Bruce Waltke, here the narrator introduces an additional name for God. The term God represents him as sovereign creator, while the Lord, L-O-R-D, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your English version, designates him as the one who initiates a unique 
covenant commitment with Abraham and his seed and who oversees its fulfillment in history. God is the initiator and God is the one who's going to initiate a special relationship with Adam. Yes, he has a relationship with all his creation, but he has not used the covenant name, his covenant name, to describe a lion, nor an alligator, a horse, a pig, or anything else. No stars, no moon, and not the sun. Just one thing. Mankind. Showing his special care love and commitment to human beings. One of the reasons that sets human beings apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. Because we are specially cared for by God and God alone. God cares for his people and know that we are but sinful flesh. So he has allowed us to have a relationship with him through his covenant. And I'll be reading uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith now, 7.1. And it says, the distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, Yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he had been pleased to express by the way of covenant. This is two pieces of textual evidence that prove that God initiates a covenant relationship with his people. He is not some distant God that has better things to do. He is not somewhere off relieving himself like some of the other gods do. When we call upon him, the New Testament says he hears us. It's not like he's too busy. He is near enough to his people and he knows our needs Intimately. In verse 5 and 6, Moses describes the field that the Lord was preparing for mankind. There's no need for man to dress up the field. God has already done that. He is not in heaven, lonely, didn't want heaven to be a place. He's lonely in heaven and didn't and wanted to create us and put us there because he was lonely or because he couldn't do the job or some of the other contemporary songs that says, you know, the only reason God called you because he was lonely without you in heaven. What? That's hogwash. That's silliness. God had already and was already in detail before he says God created man. He had already prepared. He had, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, verse 5, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. He made that very, very clear. 
He did it himself. He was the first gardener. He didn't need man. Chose man for his delight and his glory. And the mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then, transition word, then. After all of that that took place, then God created or formed man of dust from the ground. God here is the first gardener. Jesus picks up this description in John 15. He says, he is the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. God our father is the one who's committed himself to making sure all things are perfect for the growth and final glorification of his people, all of his people. If the father spent so much time and meticulous care on the environment for man, how much more time and care will he dedicate to us, his people? Let's take comfort this morning that God is near us. He has a plan, or he had a plan for, setting, for the setting of Adam. Don't you think he has a plan for you and for me? Do you think he has anything less for you and me than Adam? The vine dresser is the keeper of a vineyard. His main responsibility is to cultivate each branch so it will bear as much fruit as possible. God does this with love and for our ultimate good. But let's not get it twisted, as the young people say. His love does not short circuit the process. The process may be painful, may be excruciating pain, but let's be encouraged that if God knew what he was doing with the environment for Adam, then he knows what he's doing in our lives. Today might be a tough day for you, a tough week, a tough month. Maybe you started the year off and it's been tough. One loss after the other, whether it be a person or whether it be your health, or whether it just be you can't even figure out what the loss is. You're just grieving. God is near. And he knows how, where, and when to prune. So call out to him today for his grace to endure where you are. Verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Up to this point, God has spoken everything into existence. If you've noticed, he's spoken everything into existence. But I think this is one of the reasons that we can say why God cares for his people in a different, in a special, in a covenantal kind of way. Come on. Obviously, God could have said, let there be man. And there was man. He did it with light. He did it with everything else. And God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. But not here. Not here. Here, he formed the man of the dust of the ground, and he got really close and personal. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. 
We owe everything to our God. But I think the emphasis, if you're following me, I think the emphasis is that man is special in God's sight. He did not have to do this. He did not have to touch man. He didn't have to breathe on mankind. He didn't have to do that. He could speak everything into existence, but he, but he made man out of the dust of the ground. When I was in grade school, I was in shop class. They used to teach woodwork, ceramics, and art in all the same class. I remember making a ceramic cup. I would take my lump of clay, it was in a little bin there, it's wet, you put it on a wheel or something it was that spun around. And at certain places I would have to use more pressure than other places and then it would fall apart and then it would I would have to go get another one and it was all trial and error with me. Um, when I was done I put my name and a thumbprint on the bottom before it went into the kiln. When all the cups dried they all look alike. Nobody had painted them yet, so they all they all looked the same. I had to go over there and turn mine over, and on the bottom look for my name and my thumbprint. God is depicted in the Bible as the potter, and we are the clay. When God is forming us into the image of Christ, there are times he must apply more pressure to different parts of our lives. We may be on that potter's wheel right now, and God is applying pressure. But unlike me with my cup, it is not about trial and error with God. He knows exactly what he's doing. He has stamped his image on our soul and has plucked us out, the millions of people, to have a relationship with us. Again, verse 7 communicated to the ancient Israelites that God has a special covenant relationship that is different than all the other creation. It is also contrasted with those gods that they were delivered from. According to Egyptian legend, man was created from raw sweat and tears. But our God used his own hand to create us. Again, another indication that God is near to his people. God is the father. God the father was the first gardener. God watered the ground from the mist. God planted a garden. And he put trees in the middle of the garden. He put everything in the garden that the man needed. The last thing we notice about God is found in verses 7 through 9 in this text. God is the provider. The first thing we see in that God provided for us his very life for mankind. Man needed the breath of life to to become a living soul. God did not ask man what he needed. Hey, Adam, 
do you need a tree so you can get some oxygen? He didn't ask Adam anything. He saw the need and provided for that need. God knew that mankind needed water. So a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Mankind needed vegetation to eat and sustain himself. The trees were planted there for food and oxygen. He knew men would need to eat and from the tree of life, so he put that in the middle of the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also put there for God's purposes. Don't ask me. But notice that God didn't just put the trees there to be good for food, but pleasant to the sight. God made the trees beautiful for man's pleasure. If God did all of this for mankind, how much more will he do for those who call upon his name in times of distress? We are here this morning to look at this passage and see who our God is. The one that's revealed in scripture. Not the one that's made up with a feather on his head. Not those gods. Not the one who has a twin sister and he hates her and he's trying to kill her and she's trying to kill him and they have children. Weird stuff. That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is revealed in the text right here. God put the tree of life in the middle of the garden. Now, we will probably get to this chapter, and sometimes it's for a preacher it's taboo, you shouldn't go further ahead. But just to make this point, later in chapter 3, after the man had sinned, God mercifully blocked access to the tree of life. You say, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Men are going to die. It's not a blessing. Is it not? Is it? No? Okay. Can you imagine what earth would be like if there was no death? People like Cain would still be here. And Abel probably wasn't going to be his first victim. Jezebel would be here. I don't know if she would live in Clifton Park. She might live in Boston Lake. But I don't know where she would live, but she'll be here. Stalin would be here. Hitler would still be here. Or you name it, whoever you can come up with. And what would be their passion? What would be their driving force to torture? To torture you, to torture me, and no relief will come because there will be no death. But nevertheless, the tree of life remained inaccessible. God said, we've got to protect this because if man reaches it and eats of it, he lives forever in this sinful, degraded state. So we have a problem. Our sins need to be atoned for. But just as God provided for Adam everything he needed, God provides for us in our time of need. We need access to that tree of life, but we first need our sins forgiven. God has sent his only son, his only begotten son into the world to forgive us of our sins. 
and to give us his righteousness. You can receive Christ today if you just call out to him. He will forgive you of your sins and welcome you into his kingdom. And what about that tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden? You ever wonder about that? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And no one can eat from the tree of life except you come through me. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will give to eat the tree of life, (laughs) which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life, the one that was mentioned right here in Genesis 2, is mentioned all the way at the end of the book of Revelation. I know chapter 2-7 is not the end, but we'll get to that part. But it's the last book of the Bible. Revelation is talking about the tree of life. It mentions it three times. So you're telling me the gospel is right here in chapter 2 of Genesis? Yes, it even came before chapter 3. You're witnessing to somebody and they're reading chapter 2 and they're saying, I don't understand what's going on here. You can say, hey, you need to eat from the tree of life. And they say, where is it? We don't know, but we know who has access and we know who can give you access. Okay, let me go. No, wait, you can't go right now. You're sinful. And you must have those sins forgiven. And you must be cleansed. And you must receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Well, you thought the gospel was just Jesus died, buried, and resurrected. This is the gospel right here. This is the good news. That the tree of life is available or will be available to God's people. Through the work of in person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise God. If you don't get excited about that, you might not, you might be dead, I don't know, or sleep one. But that's something to be excited about. We have access. Or we'll have access through Jesus Christ. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, he says. Chapter 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant you to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. In Revelation 22, verse 14, Jesus also said, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. We're going to go in through the great doors. We're not going to climb over any walls. We're not going to come through the back door. We're going to go straight through the gate. And we're going to be welcomed. How much closer can God get to us? Well, the Bible says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, talking about Jesus, of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. There he 
had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 18. This is as close as you can get. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, what good is that information? What does the writer of Hebrews, I think it's the Apostle Paul, but don't tell, don't tell David that. Don't tell Pastor David that. Because he gets into a debate with me every time. I just say, hey, R.C. Spro believed it was Paul. And then he tells me all these other scholars. But nevertheless, whoever it was says, with all this information that you have this priest, you have this compassionate priest who shares your struggles or shared your struggles, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That information is not just information. That information is to empower us to come before the Lord and say, Lord, this is hard. When I look around, nobody is struggling like this. I can't find anybody to identify with what's happening with me right now. Don't come to me. I won't, I won't be able to help you. I can listen. Take this information and go with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace. And the promise is here. The promise is here that we may receive mercy. We need God's mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. Don't despair. Our God is high and he's lifted up. Don't despair. His train fills the temple. Don't despair. Our God, when you see him, you say, holy, holy, holy. I cannot look upon you. I'm a sinful man and I'm amongst sinful people. I can't look. But yet he's near Yet he's near. It boggles my mind, but it fills my heart with joy. Amen? Are you in time of need right now? Then draw near to God boldly and find the grace you need. Come to Christ and let him forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. Come to Christ and lay your burdens at his feet because he cares for you. Draw near to God because he's near to you. God is high and lifted up. And his robe fills the temple. Yet he is near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. <clears throat>